This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you looking for a lightweight, comfortable system to hunt out of this season? If you said yes, you should be checking out the Tethered Phantom Saddle. And you might be saying, Clint, how is this thing so comfortable? Well, let me tell you how. Comfort channels. Check. Comfort Channels allows simple one-handed adjustment for leaning trees. gives you full control where you need it most. If you need it in your lower back, you slot into the low comfort channel. If you need it up in, in, your, in your lower back or, I'm sorry, under your rear end, then you slot it into the low comfort channel. Utila Bridge. Check. You might be saying, hey, what is a, a Utila Bridge? This is a one-hand adjust-on-the-fly bridge system that allows you to kind of find that hunting sweet spot no matter where you hang your tether. Lineman loops. Check. You might be saying lineman loops. Psh, whatever. Overrated, right? Wrong. Lineman root loops. Lineman loops. A little bit more rigid to where you can easily find them in, in the dark. I don't know how, how many times I spent time trying to get my carabiner to clip into my lineman's loop and just wishing it was just a little bit more sturdy. The Phantom Saddle has you covered there as well. Made in America? 100%. And if that wasn't enough, they just recently came out with the Predator XL platform. This platform is 40% bigger and has improved traction over the current Predator. I hunt out of the current Predator, a little smaller profile. But if you're one of those fellows that's got some big feet, some big boots, you might want to check out the Predator XL. So if you want to learn more about Tethered and all their products, head to tetherednation.com. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 190. Today, I'm kicking off another episode of the Hunting Beast Listener Q&A miniseries with Dan Enfault, and today is part one of Bed Hunting, so stay tuned. 
All right, all right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. It is hump day. We are almost through another week. One week. I keep saying this, but it's it's absolutely true. One week closer to to whitetail season. Got a really cool show uh, lined up for us today. But before we jump into that, the quick update. So I'm going to keep this pretty brief. Um, last week, I didn't get a whole lot of... Uh, a whole lot of whitetail stuff done, just a handful of things. Of course, it's the never-ending saga of the trailer conversion, and I swear to God I will be done with that thing hopefully very soon. But what I updated last week was I put a DIY awning on, uh, which was, which consisted of a tarp, some some telescoping tent poles, and then put um, used some VHB tape and a turnabond to attach some bolts to the roof. That way I could use the grommets to slip them on and put some wing nuts on it to hold it on, in place on the roof. And that VHB tape will hold up to like 30 pounds, you know, per strip or whatever. Um, so did that. Um, that way I didn't have something drilled into the top of it. And I can easily take it on and off. That way I want to get to where I want to be. And I know I'm going to set up for a couple of days at least. And if it looks like there's going to be some weather, I can put that makeshift awning on really quickly and stake it down on the other end and have something to kind of keep uh, some, maybe some extra gear outside or stuff underneath the trailer or whatever to keep it out of the rain. Uh, if nothing else, have a little spot to where you can walk into and get out of the, out of the weather to maybe take your boots off or, or finish getting dressed or whatever the case is a little dry spot if you will extend or extend yeah words are hard today expand the uh dry footprint if you will to the outside of the outside of the trailer but the one cool thing i got to do uh for uh with whitetails last week or in the whitetail woods not really in the woods is i actually got to go glassing for the first time i didn't get a, a chance to get out and glass truthfully it's been stupid hot and we finally had just a little bit of a break in the weather due to like some really ripping storms. We had some tornadoes and stuff like that that touched down near my house. And so shit got a little crazy for, for a day or two. Um, but on the backside of that, as you get, you know, these storms on the backside of them, you usually get like some nice, cool, um, you know, nice weather to be outside at least while the front pushes through or, or whatever the case is. And so that's what we had. So I was able to get out. I think it was on Sunday night, maybe. I got out, which was awesome. I had a chance to use, I got some new binos uh, this year. So I had a chance to use my Maven binos, took those out. And it's one of those things, man, where people have always told me or said, you know, you, you never know what you're missing um, or the difference between good glass and okay glass until you have really good glass. And that was what I noticed in that kind of uh, glassing session only because, you know, during this time of year when you're doing, when you're, you know, glassing for velvet bucks, or whatever, it's right, you know, in the evening, right. And you're really kind of using that, you know, dark time or that, you know, as you're getting onto, 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 you know, night where you need night vision, so to speak. Um, you know, your, your visibility goes way down as it gets closer, you know, of course, into, into the evening hours or whatever the case is. And this glass is just awesome. It, it actually extends the, extend the amount of time I could actually sit out and, and sit out in glass. The only bummer was that I was glass in this bean field, and truth be told, this isn't really anywhere I'm going to be able to hunt. It was just more one of those things where I just like going out and trying to see velvet bucks, and that was what I wanted to do. Um, and as soon as I got there, two two youngsters popped out. One, uh, rack eight point, nice deer, nothing, wouldn't necessarily arrow him this year, so he wasn't of that magnitude. Um, you know, but it was just kind of cool to see some some velvet bucks munching on some beans this time of year. But as I was watching, there's this bean field, and then at the edge of the bean field on the far end of it, there was a timber line and then just a very small timber line. I think the stream runs through there if I'm remembering correctly. And so it's the timber on each side of the stream. And then there's another bean field on the other side. There's this gap that's there and I could see what looked like, you know, I don't even know how many yards this is. I mean, it's several hundred yards. We'll say it's far enough away that 
with binos, I could see that it was deer and I could just see frame of rack, but couldn't really see anything specifically to say exactly how big it was or what it was entirely just big enough from that far where it's like, I could tell it was a buck and it looked like he was probably a decent buck. Um, and so while I was, you know, so I saw that of course and wished I had a spotter, but Maven's coming out with a spotter or actually it's, it's out now there, there's C1, I think it is a spotter is out and I should be getting that in the mail sometime this week or next. So I'm looking forward to having that, that way I can kind of pull those deer in just a little, uh, just a little bit closer and get a, and get, and get a better look. But if you haven't had a chance to get out and do any glass and I highly recommend you do so, you know, the bummer part is, is that I really only have one area to glass that would be close to what I'm able to, what I'm able to hunt a piece of public that I'm going to be hunting. And the best place to actually glass that particular area is actually from the kayak. So, you know, I'm actually waiting till the, the temps drop just a little bit and it's not so ridiculously hot because um, it's been pretty nasty uh, other, other, with the exception of those couple of days last week and work was just such that I wasn't able to get out. So I'm kind of waiting till the temperatures kind of switch and we start getting those nice kind of cool August evenings that remind us that fall is just around the corner. And then I plan to take the kayak and hit, you know, hit that spot a couple of times because, you know, unfortunately this year that field is a cornfield. So you can't really see anything in the field, of course, but there's a, there's a timber line that they're going to have to walk out of. So it's, there's road frontage to the one to two sides of this field and it's on private property, of course, and there's a house near it and there's a road in front of it and there's no real timber on like the one side of it because the road's so close to the edge of the field. So essentially the only spot that deer can really kind of come out comfortably and slip out is near the water's edge. And, um, there's a gap right there in between the, in between the timber and the cornfield that I can kind of see from the kayak and I can kind of glass that area. So it should be really clear if anything's coming out and that's kind of my plan. Again, it's kind of a poke. So that will probably be, you know, a combo of bino and spotter for that section, but it just, I think it'd be a really cool session to go out and, and, and glass that particular area. Maybe take a couple of brewskis, maybe a couple of adult beverages in the kayak and sit there and sip and uh, sip and glass for some velvet bucks. Sounds like a pretty, quite a red-blooded American thing to do on a cool summer's evening. But with that, got a little bit of housekeeping here to do before we jump into today's today's podcast. So before we do that, we want to just make sure we mention that our friends over at Exodus, of course, are kicking off their annual Velvet Fest campaign. If you're not familiar with what Velvet Fest is, it is the official start to deer season, and our buddies at Exodus help us get the ball rolling for everyone's summer scouting. I know... For me, when Velvet Fest hits, you know, I'm going out glassing and trying to get out and do those types of things, getting velvet, you know, pictures of velvet bucks on the camera or whatever the case is, you know, that kind of signals that it's really kind of ramping up in, in, in time to go. So from July 31st to August 21st, Exodus is going to have some awesome prizes for people who use the hashtag, hashtag Velvet Fest on social media and share your whitetail adventures using that hashtag. Also, if you're in the market for a trail camera, Velvet Fest is the perfect opportunity to get ready for the season because every single camera that is ordered comes with a random prize card that you'll scratch off and reveal you know, different prizes. And of course, my buddies, since I'm buddies with those guys, they give me the drop on what's, what's kind of coming your way and you're not going to want to miss out on some of the stuff they're giving away. But that's not it. To sweeten the pot even more, each week they're going to have a special offer along with a grand prize. And just as a teaser, here are the grand prizes for each week of Velvet Fest. So week one is a 2021 October archery hunt with Steve Shirk Guide Services. If you don't know who Steve Shirk is, look him up. He has some giants to chase in Pennsylvania. Week two is a shoulder mount from Uran Taxidermy. Killer Taxidermy dirt from, that, from those folks. And week number three is a September archery hunt for this season. 
with Wicked Obsession in Kentucky and a shoulder mount from National Award-winning studio Full Draw Taxidermy. For any order on the website during the designated week, you'll be automatically entered with the purchase on the website for the grand prize. There's a lot to this campaign, so you're going to want to make sure you head over to their website and sign up for their newsletter. That's exodusoutdoorgear.com because you won't want to miss out on any of these opportunities. If you're not familiar with Exodus, I have a hard time believing that would be the case if you're listening to this show. Here's the quick Cliff Notes version for you. Over the last five years, they've consistently shown they build quality trail cameras that flat out work. And of course, the best trail camera warranty period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. Yep, that's right. You heard it right. Literally half a decade, you're covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely, you're not going to need it because their cameras are already built to last. So be sure to take part of the Velvet Fest celebration and tag me because I'll want to see all the adventures that you're up to this summer. And now with that, we'll go ahead and get jumped into today's podcast. Today, we have Dan Enfault for our next session of the Hunting Beast listener Q&A. And we are talking about the thing that most people probably wanted us to cover in the first one. I did it just to kind of have a dramatic pause. So we are going to be discussing in this part all about hunting bedding. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. We are in our next episode of the uh, Beast Style Hunting mini-series that we're doing with Mr. Dan Enfault. Today we have our our lucky winner, or maybe unlucky winner, however it uh, pl- uh, pans out for him today, uh, Mr. Easton McNeil from Ohio. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for uh, hopping on the podcast, man. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. Well, so today's plan is uh, so far during the series, we've covered uh, wind and thermals. We've covered uh, reading topos and maps. And today, I think this is the one that a lot of folks were kind of waiting for is talking about about betting. Now, of course, you know, beast style hunting is very much known for if you ask just the general person, they'll probably kind of mention, you know, hunting buck beds and finding buck beds and, 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 and hunting deer that way specifically. As we know, there's a lot more that kind of goes into it, which is we're covering a lot of these topics today. There's a lot that goes into it, whether it's map reading, whether it's understanding wind and thermals. And the beds and, and hunting those beds is really just kind of the icing on the cake is finding that kind of, you know, spot that you're going to use all these assets, whether it's wind and thermals or whatever the case is, to hunt that spot effectively. And so we threw out some, uh, threw out the topic to the to the beast crew, and they came through full force with some killer questions that we're going to dive through and and go through today. So if you fellas are ready, man, we'll go ahead and just get started. I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So the first one, I thought this was interesting, Dan, because I've heard you talk about this, and I think maybe it was even uh, the Hill Country DVD specifically. I was listening. So this fellow writes in, and it was really short. He said, "Sign looking for too much question mark." And I think what he's saying is. When guys are, or women are looking for beds or looking for bedding in general, are they all? Are they sometimes looking for like too much big sign and overlooking nuance that's telling you like this is the spot? Yeah, I believe that is often a problem. Um, in a lot of public areas, there aren't a lot of huge bucks, and um, the competition is what makes all that sign. Um, I know some really great bedding areas and low deer density areas that you really don't find sign around them. Right. Um, but I also know some high density deer areas that have a lot of mature bucks that every good bedding area is, is rubbed like crazy. So obviously finding that good sign, that big sign at bedding areas is a good thing, but, uh, not finding that isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
if you know there's a big buck on the property you're scouting and you walk in, in your talking hill country uh, and you walk that whole leeward ridge, I mean, you've walked through his bedding areas. So right. it's, it's there somewhere. Right. Yeah, it's there. I'm finding that in places, you know, in Easton, I'll kind of kick this one to you to get your opinion on this as well. Like there's a couple places in Ohio that I hunt that I know that there's big deer, um, have them on camera. And when you walk through, you know, in an area, we actually had an image on camera of one of the bucks bedded, right? So we know he's bedding like there and, and nearby, right? And I mean, you looking at the signs, you know, rubs and stuff like that, you would think there wasn't any more than a four corn in that area. And this deer is a, a giant deer, which just kind of made me really kind of, you know, think about how many times have I walked past something that was probably good and just missed it because I wasn't given enough credence to the sign that was there. Easton, what's, have you kind of had places like that where you've had, you know, good deer and just not laying down a ton of sign near, near in bedding areas? Absolutely. So to kind of put it into perspective, I picked up this farm probably about five years ago that I've been hunting. And it was actually the very first year we got pictures of this buck and it was just a mainframe 10 point, nothing special, but over the past couple of years, he's continued to show up and he's actually the only deer that we've been hunting since we originally picked up that farm four or five years ago. And it wasn't until this past fall that we were in a spot where we are getting pictures of him all the time, but we have never once seen him on the hoof in four years. Hmm. And it wasn't until we walked out on this kind of a, the point of a secondary ridge that overlooks the way we accessed and we found just one bed. There's no rubs, nothing around it that would really pop out to, you know, if you were just breezing through there, but we really kind of dug into it and found one bed right on this point. And I'm 100% convinced that was where he was betting. And that's absolutely why we've never once seen him going into that spot. Right. That's kind of like that classic spot, Dan, that you, that you talk about, you know, access being so critical when you're hunting these beds that there are a lot of times kind of, you know, perched in these places where they're, where they're watching your access. Right. Yeah. They're, they're hunting you while you're hunting them. That's a, a very common trade mature deer. They set up to watch, the danger where they know it comes from. Right. And if you were grizzly hunting, you'd be in a whole world of hurt at that point. (laughs) 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 Right. It's nothing like hunting something that's hunting you while it might also want to taste you at the same time. Um, (laughs) So um, Dan, what do you think, man? I mean, you know, some of these places, like if they're, you know, say this, this fella or whoever, you know, is, has a place like this where they're finding bedding areas and they're not finding any, you know, just say hammer sign or whatever. Are there any things that you'll kind of look for specifically that'll tell you like this is maybe his primary bed or this is where you really want to spend some time, you know, especially if the sign's really kind of, you know, nondescript to a degree? Well, if you get into um, the terrains we talk about and we kind of beat to death Mm -hmm. of how they bet, I I think he mentioned hill country. So, I mean, he's going to be on uh, a Leeward Ridge. He's going to be probably on a knob or a point. Uh, not not positively, but probably. And he's going to prefer thick above, open below. And when you find a congregation of beds in an area like that, you're probably in the right spot. Um, sometimes, you know, if there's a lot of bedding around, you, you do have to kind of filter your way through it and, and figure out which one he's coming from, I mean, through hunts. Right. But, um, you, you know, you can throw a hunt at each bedding area on a property pretty fast. Right. You know, to, just to see what's going on. 
certain bed, bedding areas hold big bucks and certain bedding areas don't, period. And, and you know, big bucks have the traits of having the best bedding areas. When you look at the terrain and you say, well, that looks like it would be the best spot, that's probably where he's at, you know. But usually it is something that most people overlook, even on private land. They're watching your axis. They're um, up against the road, someplace you don't look, behind the barn, a place that you don't go very often. You know, if you travel to spots a lot on your on your farm, he's probably not in those spots. Doesn't mean he's not close by, right? But they're usually in an overlooked spot. I mean, they just don't like human pressure. Sometimes it's just across the fence on the neighbors or something too. You know, right? But, just uh, just where he's out of reach, where he's just skirting you too. I mean, there's been plenty of times that that's happened, right? Where it's like you're in the you're in the zip code, you're just not quite in the right neighborhood, and he's hundred he's beating you about hundred yards every time. You know what I mean? One yeah. of those type of things. Yep. I think when you mention, you know, multiple beds in a spot, I think that might be another thing folks are overlooking because I think I'm guilty of this too, is if I'm cruising through a spot and I see multiple beds, I, and this is bad of me. It's like, as I'm saying it, it's making me cringe. I've walked through areas like that where I just assumed as I walked through going like, oh, those are doe beds, you know, cause there's a group of them. Right. And I just assumed, but like, I think as I've learned in, in talking to you, watching DVDs and so forth, like that I'm understanding more now, like those beds may be there purposefully for wind shifts in that particular area versus it being a, a doe family. Right. So people are probably even overlooking buck beds, thinking they're doe beds because there's a group of them. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, I've looked at properties that where people would go and show me a doe bed in area. And I'm like, that's not a doe bed in area, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and and there, there's a trigger to that too, is does will bed in buck bedding areas when the bucks aren't there, especially if it's a lone doe or a doe and a fawn, right. it's groups of does that bed separately. Um, but the biggest factor on determining if it's buck beds or doe beds, if there's no, uh, no or very little rubbing is how they're placed. A buck bed is going to have a buck when he beds, he's going to have an obstacle to his back. He's going to be looking downwind. Um, so he's going to kind of get himself up into some bushes or something and look downwind. And uh, those are in, in more open terrain are more likely to bed in a circle. And they won't have something up against their back. And you'll notice every bed in the same day will face a different direction. And it'll almost be a perfect circle. Not quite, but, you, you know, it'll be a circle. Right. And the, the beds will each face a different direction. Those are the family group type where they look out for each other. Yeah, they each monitor a different direction. Bucks look out for number one. Even if they're bedding next to another buck, they tend to watch out for number one. You see a little bit of that, more of that the bachelor groups going into the doe bedding areas kind of thing when, when uh, uh, summertime comes and they're in bachelor groups. Right, right. Most of the time, bucks are loners, and they're looking out for number one. So they're setting themselves up so that. They get their back against something. They're smelling from behind, looking in front of them, sort of covering all their bases. Where those only got to cover one little direction, or the rest of them cover something else. So they'll bed places when the wind ain't right. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll bed on uh, windward side. They'll bed on tops. Um, generally, uh, you, you know, you get in hill country. Those tend to bed a little higher than the bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you get into swamps. Those seem to bed a little bit more onto the higher ground than the bucks when they're in groups again, you know, um, but they're usually bed somewhat in the same neighborhoods, you know? Right. 
Um, but really what it gets down to is you have to learn to be able to look at those beds close and decipher them. Right. You have yeah. to be able to do more than just see a bed and say, okay, this is a bed. You know, you have to start thinking about why it's placed where it is, what's the wind doing, stuff like that. And then, then you start to figure out, well, no Buckworth at salt that's three years old or older would bed in the spot. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I, th- I think that's the thing, you know, at least the guys that I know, you know, you of course, and some of the other, other of my friends who are kind of follow the beast method or whatever it's, you know, a bed is not, not all beds are not created equal, I guess I should say. Right. And they're really good, right. at, really good at discerning, you know, when that bed might be used, right. Cause a, a bed might be used by a mature buck, but what time of year is he using it? Right. And so there's all these factors that kind of go into it that help you decipher whether or not one, it's a buck bed Two, when's the right time, when's the right time to hunt it. And I think that's the stuff, like I'm finding more beds, like personally. Um, I think what I'm now Mm -hmm. starting to get to is trying to decipher like when I'm thinking of one right now that I found on a piece of PA public this year. And it's in a, it's in like a clear cut on the side of a mountain that just kind of like turns into like the swamp in the side of a mountain. And I found this, his bed, he's got some rubs in it and he's got something to his back and he's looking downwind and it would be perfect for him to kind of cruise in there because he's going to catch the morning thermals coming up the side of the ridge. You know, it's just like, and I got into bed and I just kind of was looking around. And I'm like, you know, when would he use this and why would he use it? Well, as I kind of scouted around, I was like, man, this feels like a mid-October bed. Why? Because there is an acorn or there's a white oak tree that was dropping this year that there were still a bunch of, you know, old acorns on the ground that wasn't any more than 20, 30 yards from his bed. And I was like, mm-hmm. bingo. You know what I mean? So I was like, it, now I don't, I, I got, I got to check it out this year and see, but I was starting to put the pieces together as to like when that deer would use that spot and why he might use it, you know? So, but, uh, all right. So the next question here is, this is more just a clarification. I think Dan, cause this person said he's heard people talk, you know, about, you know, the upper third, you know, and, and, and so forth. He's heard, you know, the, the term thrown out military crest and stuff like that. And he's just wanting to know, like, what topo line am I looking for whenever I'm trying to find beds? You know, and I think he's referring to Hill Country here. And what is a, a military crest, and what does it look like? All right, you're gonna you're gonna look for where it starts to rapidly drop off, where the lines start coming together rapidly on a hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have that everywhere, um, but the more rapid a drop off, the more where the beds are going to be pinpointable on the topo map. Um, so if you look at the, the line starting to come together fast at the top in the top third or whatever, you'll see it. Now, if he's having a hard time seeing it on the top of the map, what he needs to do really is go into the woods, uh, walk down a hilltop until he hits that trail. There's going to be a trail right at that, that height or, or, or a couple of them that are going to follow that ridge right at that one third line. And that's easier than trying to pick, pick it out exactly on the top of the map. And then once he starts to see it and he starts to look at it in the woods, he'll see it a lot better. Um, the, there is a difference, though, between um, steep hills and rounded hills. You get into more rounded hills, um, then, you, then you get the beds will fluctuate from like halfway down to the top. Uh, they, they move a lot more. They move a lot more during the day because the because the wind and thermals will meet in different spots at different times of the day. We're in that steep terrain. The thermal will come up and it'll meet that wind at an exact spot right where that sudden drop off is, and that's where the, the that's where the military crest is. So if you're walking along the top of that ridge, you'll just see a spot where the, the 
it, it's gradually going downhill, but all of a sudden there'll be a spot where it just kind of drops. That's the military crest. Yeah. And you can see it on the top because the lines will come together real tight. Those military crests aren't everywhere. They're in certain certain uh, areas of the country have them. Um, some areas don't. Some have more rounded hills. Right. Now, what, what do you have in uh, Ohio, Easton? You have rounded hills or you have uh, steep drop-offs? So I do about 50-50 hunting between where I'm actually from, which is central Ohio, which is kind of more gradual rolling hills, a lot of farm country. But mm-hmm. what I've kind of been referring to is southeastern Ohio specifically. Um, I've kind of become obsessed with it just because it's got the – it's kind of more in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. So you got the steeper hills, 200-foot-ish changes in elevation. So you get those those steeper hillsides is kind of what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. And what's nicer is, is in that steeper stuff, and you hunting both of it, you can probably relate to this, isn't that steeper stuff? I mean, you might have the same amount of bucks, but on the same hill, you, you know, one's rounded, one's steep. But on the steep one, you'll be able to see those beds worn into the ground in, in certain spots. With the rounded ones, you can kind of overlook and not even see the beds sometimes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. Yeah. I mean, I if I have my uh, if I have my way, it's like I certainly prefer the steeper stuff. Like I found and it's probably not it's not probably not by accident it probably isn't a surprise to you dan but it's like i i have a lot easier time using my map and having more success mm-hmm. scouting you know those areas than i do in places where the hills are kind of rolling, rolling hills. Yeah, yeah yeah just because I, I struggle a little in rolling hills too it's it's definitely a, a harder hunt yeah for sure yeah it's it, a little harder to figure out the bedding it's a little harder to pinpoint and it's a little harder to see it um you don't have as much sign to be confident about yeah. Um, but in the steeper hills, you can really see it. It shows up so well. Yeah. I, I was just, I was just doing some scouting for a trip, uh, online for, uh, to go to Missouri this year. And it's, it's it got a very similar kind of t- uh, topographic layout that you know, I had when, where I was in uh, Iowa last year. And it's just driving me a little batty. Cause I'm looking at it going like, well, this looks like it could be good betting. And I'm like, ah, man, I don't know if that drops good enough. I don't know if that's enough. Fill of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where it's like, when I look at some <laughs> of the places in Ohio that I hunt, you know, cause, uh, Easton and I were talking about this. We, you know, we both hunt, uh, Southeastern Ohio. And I was like, man, I love hunting there because I can look at the map and be like, mm, if I'm going to go scout a new piece, I can look on the map and say, these are the five places I need to go look in this ridge system. You know, and if it's not, if there's nothing there, then there's not anything worth hunting, you know? But, um, right. you know, so I need to sharpen myself on the rolling hills. I think that's one of those places, man, where we've talked, even when we did the the mapping podcast, where it's like some of those things are so subtle that you just don't see on a map that you just literally have to put boots on the ground and go pound it out and see what's there. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. otherwise, you'll just miss it. And I think those rolling hills are very much like that, where I've overlooked plenty of stuff and then walked through and been like, I can't believe I was going to I was going to just blow by this, you know, so. All right. So this next question is, uh, this feller says, 
uh, dominant winds changing during the year, you know, he's he's saying is it safe to assume that their betting is changing throughout the year? And I think what he's kind of referring here to Dan is is uh, like wind shift betting type type of stuff. So I mean, if you wouldn't mm-hmm. mind, I guess talk a little bit about you know how betting changes with you know how the wind kind of changes and what that wind shift kind of kind of uh, looks like. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like he's talking about like. Uh south winds changing to more north winds and stuff like that right which does change betting um and it shifts it from different areas but that's like when we talk all the time that like you say it's safe to assume yeah their betting areas change all the time they change based on wind they change change based on food they change based on rut they change based on uh the amount of cover um and you got to shift with them um as far as wind shifts go um Bucks really like the bed, the, the older ones, really like the bed where they can move a very short distance if the wind changes during the day. You know, um, so the other side of a ridge or other side of a point, they'll, they'll make their way around a point. Um, and they also like those um, real tight valleys where they can, where they have several points overlooking the tight valley. And uh, a lot of pipe, people call those thermal hubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't get near them without the deer smelling you, you know? Um, but, uh, to answer this question, yeah, it's safe to assume they move, um, bedding areas constantly. So you have to understand when you look at a bedding area, whether it's, uh, um, early season, whether it's late season, whether it's rut, um, whether it's, um, uh, cover related, and then you have to, you know, figure out if it's for a food source and what wind they bed there on. Uh, there's all kinds of factors that go into it that have to be weighed out. It's not as easy as just finding a bet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I think we covered this guy's next question because he was kind of asking this a similar thing just about what you started getting into there, you know, uh, betting for different times of the year and stuff. Because he was saying he's walked a ton of land, you know, and he's trying to understand the difference between, you know, wind specific betting and non wind specific betting. And I think what he's kind of referring to is what you were talking about, like the different dynamics that are going to affect betting overall. He's, he said he's walked a ton of miles on state land in in the spring and found a lot of good sign, but he's still just trying to grasp when deer are in those specific betting areas and when they're in, and, and, and when they're not, there's one that I always kind of struggle with, you know, is, is rut betting. You know, and I've heard people talk about the idea of like, you know, if there's a primary scrape, you know, or something like that, or maybe a community scrape, it's going to get a lot of action that, you know, oftentimes mature deer will bed not far off of those because they know that it's going to get tended, you know, between 930, 10 o'clock or whatever, you know, some does are going to walk by and that they'll be there then to intercept those does. Like, what's your take on, on rut bedding? Because to me, that's probably like the biggest wild card in, in terms of finding bedding. Okay. I think I think your theory with the the, the um, scrape is a pretty accurate one, but it makes me snicker a little because to me I don't I don't think that's exactly what they're doing, hmm. but it kind of is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what what, uh, what I've deciphered out of uh, rut bedding is that these bucks get a bedding area that monitors those. Mm-hmm. So to monitor a doe bedding area, it'll monitor um, uh, a doe feeding area. Um, a little travel route between the bedding and food. Um, and it's hard to even tell it's a bedding area. You can see a bed, but the bed doesn't look like it has much use. But oftentimes, there's rubs all around the bed. Hmm. Which, you know, you see this barely used bed with all these rubs around it. 
No, that's where you got to put your detective hat on and, and say, well, the buck's barely bedding here, but he rubbed like crazy. Hmm. Why is he bedding here? He's bedding here because of those. I mean, that's why he's so worked up. And then oftentimes there's a scrape adjacent to that that's on the trail that the does come out of the bedding um, heading towards food. Right. And oftentimes he's monitoring that, aimed at it, looking at it. Right. Um, I've seen it several times. I've, I've seen a lot of bucks bed like that. It's a week-long period. They'll do it year after year after year. Um, and once you find one of those beds, you can set up on it and uh, kill that buck the next year. But he's only going to be there for about a week or so period. In that, in that pre-rut where he's frustrated trying to get one of those goals to go into estrus. Right. So, I, you, you know, then after a certain amount of time, they're going to go into estrus, and then he's just going to be running around wild. Right. And then that bed's not going to be used as much, but there's going to be a what, one-week period. I mean, here it's usually like the last week of October. Right. Um, where I'm at, that they, that they use those types of rut beds. And I actually do better in ruts because I hunt more bedding. Mm-hmm. I do better in ruts. Uh, in October, where most people don't do well until the second week of November, you know, hunting funnels and stuff, you right. know, where I do more better in October with the right. rut activity. Right. It sounds like it's so I understand now why you snickered, right? Because it's not so much that the scrape is there, it is that it's that scrape is there because the doe bedding is there and there's a congregation of does, therefore, a scrape. Right, is, right. He's, is, putting is the, he's putting the scrape there because of the does being yeah. right there and, yeah. and because he's already there watching them, yeah. basically. Yeah. So some of the times I see that it doesn't even have a scrape involved or I'm not able to locate it. Right. Um, I could, I can think of several spots like that, um, that I found where they just sit there and they, the same thing as like, like Easton said, how they sit on the hill and monitor him accessing. Mm-hmm. They'll sit in the spot and monitor the doe bedding. They know if they go in there, the does are going to run out and go someplace else. Right. Yeah. So they just sit back and they monitor it. It's, uh, we actually had a spot uh, in a swamp. Me and Mario were hunting where, uh, where uh, uh, two bucks were monitoring the same place from two different spots. And um, it, it was kind of weird because those come out, they'd come past the one buck, he'd get up and chase after him. And then when they come, come past the island we're at, we realized there's another buck monitoring when they got to there. But all was within 100 yards of the doe bedding. Um, and there was a lot of scrapes involved in that. Um, several where the one was watching, several where the other was watching, but we didn't catch on to the other one until we seen it rise up to chase the does. Yeah. It's funny because I always think, but I think that's one of the cool things about, you know, being on, you know, different hunts that that you've gone on and being able to kind of recall back is, you know, one thing I've picked up from, you know, I've had a lot of opportunity to talk to a lot of really cool, you know, you know, good hunters on this show and like, like always asking the question why you're right. And I'm always going back to like previous hunts and like when I pick up a new piece of information and go, well, does that fit this scenario? And is this what played out? And as we're talking about this, I'm thinking the one deer that I killed the, the, the deer from Ohio, because when he jumped up, like he jumped up and he was right next to me. And I didn't learn this until, well, there was a scrape that was, you know, within, you know, bow range of me, but it wasn't until I went back a second year and hunted it where I found maybe 15 yards further back into the cover that there was just a scrape that was opened up like the size of like a car hood, like just huge. Right. And then it was Mm -hmm. after I found that, and that was like a year later, I then realized 
that was when it dawned on me that I was actually sitting in between two two doe bedding areas, and it made me realize that I think that he was bedded just on the the crest, like on the military crest, right? He was on the upper one third. He was just bedded on the other side of like the of the of the point, and he was just laying there waiting for does to come through because that was like a huge travel corridor, a big, you know, with a big scrape open between two doe bedding areas, and he was just mm-hmm. watching and waiting for does that were going to pop out of either one. And it didn't dawn on me until I started thinking about where that scrape was at in a relationship to where I thought he was bedded and where he jumped up from and how quickly he got to me. It was it, mm-hmm. it made me think that that's exactly what he was doing was was doing that. And my my tending grunt just pissed him off enough that he jumped up. That was it. So, but uh, Easton, you had any situations like that, man? You got any like any hot spot you kind of doe bedding areas that you find kind of bucks lurking about and, and bedding near? Yeah, so I kind of to backtrack, you know, Dan was talking about, you know, these bucks monitoring bedding areas and all that. And my mind goes kind of here to the farm country where it's less steep terrain. And I think that's why I'm so obsessed with hunting down south is because it's such a work in progress for me. Just I've become obsessed with learning how these deer work. But here uh, in central Ohio, I've noticed typically towards the end of October, um, catching these bucks working the downwind side of bedding areas where all these does are hanging out is where I've kind of honed in on a lot of the buck activity. And I think for me, the biggest challenge is finding a spot where you're close enough to get in range of the buck. But at the same time, if he's cruising that downwind side, not being downwind to him where he's going to bust you. Right. Yeah, you're always kind of, it's the whole playing the wind aspect and riding it on a razor's edge where it's almost, you know, wrong for you and almost perfect for him, you know, trying to stay out of harm's way. Right, room. exactly. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, we'll move on to uh, to the next question here. Um, hey, if, uh, if you don't mind, um, I think you missed something on somebody's question back there when he was asking about uh, um, wind-specific betting. I think maybe he's betting. He's talking about flat land, and he's looking at beds, and he's having a hard time figuring out which ones are wind specific and which ones aren't. Oh, uh, yeah. And and the way you, you do that is he's going to have his back against uh, an object, and he's going to have a vision one way, right? Right. If he does, that's wind specific. If he can see one way, and one way is he's got his back against the wall, it's it's wind specific. If the if the bed is in hmm. solid thick cover, like surrounded by water and, and cattails or whatever, wind don't wind don't matter at all. Hmm. And in a lot of cases, um, you'll get like a point that goes into a swamp. On the end of that point, they'll bed on the point, looking up the point. When the wind's coming from the swamp up the point, when the wind's blowing down the point, they'll bed further in. So. Sometimes the the, the, the uh, beds for a different wind are nearby. Hmm. You know what I mean. But it's, right. but when you look at an actual bed, if he has vision one way and an obstacle to his back, you, the the wind is coming from the obstacle to him. Right. Um, if he's completely surrounded by heavy cover, it's uh, it's sound related. You know, it has hmm. nothing to do with wind. That's interesting. I would have never thought that. <laughs> which means I'm, I would have been blowing up, blowing up hunts. Cause I was just thinking of a bed right now where I'm like, I thought that that was a wind specific bedding, but now I'm going, I don't think that it is. <laughs> I think it, I think now that you're, um, 
now that you mentioned it, I think one of the beds that I found in and around this thicket, I think it is hearing related bedding because you'd have to walk through a mile of garbage to try to get to him. And there would be no way you would ever, anything would ever get close to him without him hearing it first. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. I would have never, I would have never thought that. Um, so thanks for picking up on that, man. Cause we would have totally glossed over that. And I think that that's a good kind of insight for folks, you know, cause I think a lot of times folks, you know, and rightly so think, think wind first, right. Cause I think that we should, right. But then there's plenty of scenarios where, you know, wind is, um, not to their advantage or isn't going to be to their advantage. So they're using other, they're using other, other aspects. So. Yeah. Like when you get into hill country, probably uh, 90, 95% of the beds are, are, are wind specific. Right. You get into swamps, uh, 90% of the beds are probably not wind specific. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, actually I just ran across a bed on sat. Was it Saturday? I think it was last Saturday. I was putting out a final camera in and around this swamp and uh, I, I jumped the deer out of this area uh, last year when I walked in. And uh, I, I assumed there was a bed over there, and so I didn't mess with it. And then I went back this uh, this off season whenever I was hanging a camera and just went in to kind of ex- explore. And there surely there was a bed on the point in this swamp kind of right next to the water. Like, I mean, on the water, basically. And there's no way he could see anything. You know what I mean? Like the wood, like when I got down in the bed and looked, like there's no way he could watch like his back trail at all. And that's making me think that that's all sound related because every time I've ever walked in and tried to potentially hunt that bed, kind of assuming there was one there, I would always blow a deer out of there. Always. Like never ever have mm-hmm. I gotten in there close enough to actually hunt it without without that deer getting out of there. So I think that that's a situation where. I th- that's one of the spots Dan I told you about that where I was using uh, the road as cover sound. And I think that might be a bed that I can only hunt after a rain and go in like with, you know, the road as my cover sound, but I don't think any dry days, I don't think I would ever be able to hunt that bed ever. Yeah. So, so, all right, cool. Uh, on to the next question. Uh, this fella writes in and says, uh, best way to hunt bedding, uh, you know, observation beds he's talking about those places where they're overlooking kind of like what easton was referring to earlier you know over access Mm -hmm. trails he says you know pros and cons of trying to beat that deer back to bed in the morning what's your take on trying to beat that deer back Uh, it's not easy um uh, i've tried it many times and failed most of the time Mm -hmm. and um I, especially when I was younger, I mean, I'd get real aggressive. I'd get right over the top of the bed, get really high or something. Um, but the trouble is most of the time those, those bucks get back before daylight. They wander around a little bit in the dark. You can hear them walking underneath you. They eventually, they end up wandering across your scent trail. Right. Um, or figuring you out or picking you off. Or they just bed down and they're not in the bed you thought they were going to be in. And you have no shot. And you're just sitting there with the deer bedded there um, until you either get down and spook it out of there or you just sit there all day until he gets up and hope he gives you a shot opportunity. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pain. Um, I've done better on, uh, uh, in hill country. If it's a, if it's hill country, he's talking about, mm-hmm. I've done better um, getting downhill from the bed and getting them when they, uh, when they start to go up to bed you know, or, or going down the trail further in the mornings. I like to go the direction they're coming from. I like to go a couple hundred yards and try and catch them on the trail headed towards the bed. Right. Um, because I, th- I think, uh, 
you're not going to screw the bed up that way if they come in early. Right. Um, and you're not going to have the problems of over the top. I mean, to, it's hard to explain to a beginner. Um, but if you go in and you hunt some beds like that, you'll realize really quick, it's a pretty hard nut to crack. Right. Um, to actually kill them from in, inside the bedroom over the top of the bed is, is pretty tough. Um, it can be done. And I know a few people have done it. Joe did it last year. Right. Um, but it, it's not, it's not very easy. Um, Joe's scenario, he got, uh, up against, a, uh, a fence in a field where the deer really would have to go out into the open to circle back around and, and use like an obstacle of an open field to keep him from getting downwind of him. Um, and then he let the deer bed down and he, I believe he shot it right in the bed, uh, <laughs> when it got light enough in the day to shoot it, Right. but it bedded before daylight. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, not only do you have to beat them back, but you also have to, depending if, you know, in Joe's situation there, it's like having that, being able to use that barrier to kind of predict how he was going to enter the bed. So he's not crossing his, his tent trail or anything like that. It's, you know, mm-hmm. trying to play that J hook is almost impossible because to your point, when we talked about wind and thermals, it's like they're always going to come in with the wind, you know, in their face into their into their bed. Like so whether they today they're going to J hook in this way tomorrow, they might J hook a little bit differently if they're going to use the same bed. Right. If they have a similar wind just based on how they want right. to enter, you know, for for safety's re- yeah. or for safety purposes. Right. And when they come in from downwind, no matter how high you're up, there's a chance they're going to catch you. Right. And they, they, they want to circle downwind and smell the area before they come in. Um, so it, it is, it is a difficult task to do, but there are some things you can do. Um, you know, you know, like I said, if you, if you have to hunt more and hunt a little further back, so you get more than one chance that you don't just blow them off your property. Mm-hmm. Um, if your property is big enough, um, and you can't, you can only access from one spot you can't get around it. It might not be a bad idea to just blow them right out of that bed every time you're there. Go up there and get sent right in the bed and just make them bed someplace else so you can kill them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, with a little thought, there's a different way to get in there. Right. And, and that's where, you know, correct, um, correct me if I'm wrong, where like access becomes paramount, especially in those places where they're kind of in those overlooks like Easton was talking about you know, earlier in the, mm-hmm. the podcast where he's got a spot where deer are clearly watching them enter you know, and how you're getting in and out. I mean, you might need to go a mile out of your way to get in to where the way you need to get in to avoid him either one seeing you, smelling you, or whatever the case is. Right. And another thing you can do is you can uh, go in with a buddy, and when you're in a block spot, he keeps going, and you go up the tree. Most often, those bucks that are watching you are watching you. They, they know you're coming in that direction. They're not scared of you. They let you go past, and then they go about their business after you're gone. They're okay with it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can get to a point where he can't see you and one guy goes up a tree and the other guy keeps going, uh, that can work. Right. Um, a little decoy action. <laughs> right. I like right. it. I like right. it. I like it. What Easton, what, uh, any of this, any of this ringing a bell for you in your, in your situation where you have the, that, that overlook where there's, there's deer kind of using that to their advantage. Is any of this kind of helping, helping oh. out? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I would venture to say that people listening, probably you get a lot of public land hunters and probably a lot of private land hunters as well. And the spe- the piece that we've been kind of mentioning here is a piece of private that I hunt. And I think, you know, at some point you get too comfortable on your own property and you get too predictable. 
And, Absolutely. you know, you hunt, you hunt when you're able to rather than when the, the conditions are best for your hunting. So I definitely think that's something we did was we got, you know, we took the easy access that was the fastest and, you know, obviously the least uh, steep terrain, obviously. So, and it wasn't until a year or two ago that we finally decided, you know, we need to switch something up. And uh, we added about a 45-minute detour to our, what would have been about a 30-minute hike to our tree stands. Now we're taking about an hour-long hike. Hmm. Yeah, doing doing the doing things the right way, trying to you know get in unde- undetected. Has it has it panned out for you? Has, has the uh, action been better? Yeah, definitely. And I think you know adding that little bit, it it you know obviously takes more time, and we have to put in obviously a little more effort to get up this steep steep side of the hill. But I think we've definitely kind of been slipping in the back door on the opposite side of the ridge where that deer specifically has been bedding and we haven't been able to catch up with them quite yet, but I'm hoping this is the year that maybe that happens. Right. Right. Well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, you know, all the uh, hard work is, uh, is for, uh, is for good reason. And you end up airing them this, uh, uh, this year. I can't say that I have any spots like that to where I'm getting, that I'm getting washed. Well, I shouldn't say this. I should say, I don't think I don't have any that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> right because <there's>, <laughs> that's what we thought right it's like i'm sure i'm sure i'm being watched at uh at some point but uh all right so i think we can move on to the next question so this one uh we're gonna move i think looking here into some swamp stuff dan um this fellow here says um you know what features you know areas you know are you in a swamp are you looking at you know, he's, you know, he'll hear you or other people talk about, you know, going into swamps and scouting kind of quickly or whatever, and you'll know that there's a, there's a big buck there. So what, what features are you, are you looking for to know one, that there's a buck in a swamp where it's maybe a little harder to find bedding. And then also what side of the swamp specifically that, that buck is on, how are you able to tell those things? Well, what I, what I do is, um, I speed scout the, uh, transition, the edge. So I will take the dry land where it meets the swamp and I'll follow that, um, where, where the dry land hits water mm-hmm. and that edge, um, probably, um, 80 or 90% of the bedding is going to be along that edge. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not along that edge, it's on an isolated, um, point or something or Island or tree that's out in the swamp. Right. But but you should be able to find that sign really quickly by following that transition. Um, you can take, you know, like um, we, we have a lot of swamps where I, where I live. And I can go into, you know, um, a three-mile square swamp and scout it in a couple of days because I just walk the transitions, the edges. Right. Go walk the island edge. Go walk each edge and... Uh, if there's a big buck, I'll run into it pretty quick. Where most guys will go out there and they will scour areas. They'll go back and forth, look through a whole woods. They'll look at everything. And uh, following that edge will tell you everything you need to know really quick. And generally, that's the areas that I'm going to set up and hunt anyways. Right. So it's going to get me onto the deer really quick. And especially if I'm going into a new area in season, I can do it pretty quick then. I can just uh, run that edge. And then you can, while you're looking at that, you can, you can look at a, your onyx or whatever, and you can look at, well, okay, 
up this transition, I can see there's some there's something going on back in the uh, cattails. Mm. Like there's some trees or brush in there coming off this point. Then you can look and see if there's a rub line coming out of that or if there's a good trail coming out of that. Um, you, you know, if it's a swamp, you can see higher, big, rounded trees out there versus the, the, the brushy, smaller trees that'll look different on the aerial. And you can see there's something different. It's the same thing as cattails. It's just not as easy to see. They all look like trees, right? Right. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you can you can go through, uh, like, a 200-acre swamp, you, you know, in, a, in an afternoon. Right. And, and know whether or not it's worth hunting. Right. Now, do you take an... Um, so when he's asking about how you're predicting what side the swamp is on, say that your access is in the south, right? And mm-hmm. say maybe you're predicting that the bedding's going to be in the in the north. I mean, is some of that are you playing? I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you are, but you're playing into that also where your pressure is going to potentially come from as well, and kind of looking at those, going, yeah, these are the easy places to get to. Yeah, this right. If if he's uh if he's inferring that uh, the wind plays to what direction, I think that the, I should I should play with. It has nothing to do with it on a swamp. I'm looking for what area has the most pressure. Uh, what is being overlooked? I'm looking for the 10% of that swamp where nobody goes, whether it's alongside the road or it's real remote or uh, it's some forgotten piece of cover because you got to walk through a lot of coverless area to get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm looking for the stuff that I think nobody else is looking at. Right. And for whatever reason that is. Um, so I'm trying to figure out where does everybody go and just cross all that off because no deer five, six years old is walking around where people hunt. Right. So you have to find those little side spots, and, and that's the main thing I'm concentrating on. Um, so when I'm looking at that transition edge, a lot of times I'm not looking at it where other people would. Um, my first bet is to go along the roads and stuff and look at it along the roads, and then my second one would be to go out and look at the more remote stuff that's hard to get to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it, it, that's a big distinction, right? It's like, especially if you've got like a three mile kind of swamp, right? It's like looking at the stuff that everyone's going to look at isn't even worth walking. It's like, just go ahead and bypass that, get to the places where you might have better, might have better luck, you know, along those, you know, clear transitions that are easy to kind of pinpoint on the, on the, on the map. Um, right. Right. So this next question here is, well, Easton, do you have any swamps that you're, you're hunting in, o, in Ohio or are you mainly, you know, sticking to, sticking to your hills? No, I'm going to be honest. You, you start talking swamps, you take me out of my comfort zone a little bit. So <laughs> I would say, uh, I got nothing good to add to that. I'll leave that to you guys. <laughs> it's funny. Like, so funny story, right? So when I moved to the area here, like the first couple of years I lived in, in and around Philadelphia, like I traveled back home three hours to hunt because I was familiar with the terrain. Like I knew how to hunt it. And around this area in Philadelphia, it's like you have, there's not much elevation, you know, most of it's swampy, you know, kind of, kind of situations, especially the public land. Cause it's places that can't be developed. Um, and, it was my first year where I just decided I was going to commit to hunting like only public land that was around here. Cause I was like bound to determine to, to learn it. And two, I was just tired of driving three and a half hours back home to hunt all the time. And so it was the first year in the swamp. And I don't know if you remember this damn, but I was sitting in a tree. I actually bumped like the one deer that I was, uh, that I had pictures of. He was like a 130 some odd inch deer. It was a good deer for this area. And, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm baffled by this thing. And I think maybe Dan, you and I did our first podcast together and you were like, Hey, if you ever had any questions about anything, just text me or whatever. So I'm sitting in my tree and I'm like, 
I'm sitting in the swamp. I'm like, I've got no freaking idea like where I should be finding deer in this place. So I just text Dan while I'm sitting in a tree and I'm like, Hey, I'm in the swamp. And I know there's deer in here because I got them on camera, but I've got no freaking clue where they're at. I'm like, and I can't find any rubs. I can't, I don't see any scrapes anywhere. And his, he's, he sent back like three words. He said, check first transition. <laughs> and so on my way back out, I left with a little bit of daylight and scouted the, the, the transition line on my way out and bingo, all the sign that was, it was right there. And so that was, so don't feel bad, man. It took me like a hot minute in a, in a, uh, and swallowing my pride and texting Dan and asking him like, Hey buddy, where, where can I find all this deer sign in the swamp at? Would you help me out? So <laughs> I guess never say never, but I would say for now, I'm pretty comfortable on my hill. Right. <laughs> you, you know, you, you know, that brings a point really though, that, uh, a lot of guys that are asking these questions are probably really confused by all this. Right. Um, put the theory to work, put some boots on the ground and go test those theories, go scout those spots. Once they start walking, there'll be some aha moments to what we're saying here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is too, I think is important, like is don't be afraid to ask questions, right? I mean, there was that day it's, you know, I've been hunting since I was a kid, but I was baffled by this particular habitat and terrain, you know what I mean? And it's like, I could have spent Mm -hmm. another year trying to figure it out or, I had a guy who was nice enough to offer me like, Hey, if you need advice, just let me know. And I was like, I'm going to take him up on it, you know, and see if I can't get a, you know, expedite my learning curve, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I think that's the other lesson too, is like, don't be afraid to ask people questions, you know what I mean? Cause more often than not hunters are willing to give you info as long as you're not asking them for the GPS pins if where they're hunting, you know? So, <laughs> so All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.